Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Hi, this is Jess. I'm calling from St. Catharines, Ontario. And as a quasi-vegan who can't quite give up cheese, the majority of my protein comes from soy, tofu, tempeh, and the like. And so my question is about soy. Is growing soy in a monoculture way that we do really that much better for the environment than chicken or fish? Thanks. Jess, that's a great question. And it's a familiar question because we answered it during our mailbag episode. And if you recall, our answer was yes. Soy is better, even monoculture soy. But then we decided that soy was such a fascinating issue, we should do a whole show about it. Because a lot of people think soy is terrible for the environment, for the climate, for our health. Soy's just got a bad reputation. It's, it's amazing Taylor Swift hasn't written a song about it. I mean, honestly, soy needs a publicist. It totally does, because it has a PR problem. <laughs> Everyone loves to hate on soy. And, you know, the reasons go back years, but lately the big one is man boobs. As soon as you say soy, man boobs is like one of the first things that comes up. But there are other things, too. Uh, There's the allergens. There's the association with processed food. And lately, just really over the last several years, there has been a total full-court press in some corners of the nutrition community to really blame not just soy oil, but seed oils in general for everything that ails us, for primarily disease and obesity. And that's before we even get to the environmental impact. Yeah, and soy is the baddie there, too. It's, it's blamed for everything, especially deforestation. Um, there is a lot of soy grown in Brazil, so it's seen as a destroyer of the Amazon. Uh, some green groups have pushed soy boycotts. Uh, there have been soy moratoriums. As the caller mentioned, there's also a lot of soy grown in monocultures that do get drenched with pesticides and herbicides. So it's often seen as kind of a representative of everything that's wrong with industrial ag. And of course, there's a ton of soy fed to animals. So people who don't like animal agriculture often don't like soy, which is kind of funny because a lot of the right-wing culture warriors that we talked about last week who kind of associate meat with macho, you know, they associate soy with wimpy tofu veganism, right? So for, for all you have blue America hating soy because it's unhealthy, you have red America hating soy because it's too healthy. And you hear them insulting prissy cosmopolitan liberal hipsters as soy boys. And that doesn't even get into the whole GMO issue. Right. And most of the soy grown in the United States, although not so much elsewhere, is genetically modified. And if there's one thing that makes people put the brakes on liking anything, it's genetic modification. Right. It's frankenfoods. Oh, God, soy is messing with our guts. It's probably responsible for the rising crime rate. Come on, Mike. Not the crime rate. But we're here to tell you today that soy is actually good. And we're going to spend the next half hour or so telling you why. 
Well, look, and if it isn't always good, it's at least like democracy, right? It's the worst solution except for all the others. Soy gets blamed for a whole bunch of soy-adjacent problems that aren't really soy's fault. And so today, both environmentally and nutritionally, we're going to try and rehab soy's reputation. I'm Tamar Haspel. And I'm your friendly neighborhood soy boy, Michael Grunwald. And we are Climophores. This is a show about eating on a changing planet. So, Tamar, it's weird. Uh, Tofu is the ultimate health food, right? Edamame is soybeans, right? Everyone loves soy sauce. And we're all talking about how the world desperately needs more vegetable oil, right? Soy oil. But somehow soy has become public enemy number one. There is massive cognitive dissonance in the good food community. Because on the one hand, we have this emphasis on plant protein, plant protein, plant protein, because of course animals are the thing that are getting pegged for a lot of the ills of industrial agriculture. And so people want plant protein. That's the replacement. But somehow the most efficient producer of plant protein is like the devil. It's mind-boggling. So, so, so tomorrow, why don't you just sort of explain, and probably a lot of our listeners know this, but what's a soybean? What is soy? So soy is one of the, uh, the there's a family, actually, of crops that are legumes. And, of course, lentils are another example. But, Have uh, we ever mentioned lentils? <laughs> yeah, I know. We <laughs> We're repeating that. ourselves here. Um <laughs> And the great thing about legumes is that they have evolved this symbiotic relationship with these bacteria in their roots. And they are actually able to take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and fix it in the soil. And that's a huge thing because it means that not only do soybeans need less fertilization or legumes in general need less fertilization than other crops, but when you rotate legumes into your crop rotation, sometimes those other crops need less fertilization because you have the the nitrogen fixing from the legume. Right, and everybody talks about how we love cover crops, right? And and Biden talked about it in his State of the Union address. But, you know, mostly it's legumes that that we're planting to put nitrogen back into the soil. And soybeans do it, and they, you know, and they actually get a crop out of it. Well, and lots of cover crops are legumes, too. The vetches and clover, those are all uh, legumes. Right, and they, they all fix nitrogen. But, you know, once you have the food, that has advantages, too. It's actually a complete protein. It has all the amino acids that humans need, although I have to add that you don't necessarily have to eat foods that are complete proteins in and of themselves. You can get a little bit here and a little bit there, and it's just fine. But they also are extremely high in protein. They're high in fat, which is why they're used for oil. And, you know, although high in fat doesn't raise the, hey, this is good for you flag in the Western world where overconsumption is a problem. If you're trying to feed the world, high in fat is high in calories, and that's a good thing. It also has 
a neutral taste. And so it can be used in all kinds of applications. I mean, it's not a coincidence that soy became the preeminent legume crop. And that's one of the reasons it also became super efficient because well, it was efficient to start with. But then, of course, lots of research went into it. And there's, you know, the, the analog is corn, which is also, that's the most efficient cereal grass and, and uh, soy is the most efficient legume. And so, of course, people put research into it to, to even widen the gap. Um, and so there's and lots of— And by efficient, of, basically, you mean like you can get a lot of food for a lot of not a lot of land— Acre. And again, I don't know how many how many episodes I've I can go without mentioning my favorite metric calories per acre. But soybeans deliver calories per acre. They deliver about six million in the United States, about six million calories per acre. Whereas a lot of other legumes are half that or even less. So soy is super efficient. Now, of course, soy also has these compounds, isoflavones, which are, you know, they're also called phytoestrogens, and they they act like estrogen in your body, but of course they're they're not very strong. And that's where a lot of the issues come from that people are concerned about soy, and we're going to get to that. But it makes sense to note up front, yes, soy does have phytoestrogen. So that's sort of just the overview of the plant. And I uh, should say, like, you know, in the United States, we plant a lot of it. I mean, right now we've got like 90 million acres of, of soybeans. It wasn't always like that. And it's in many ways replaced oats. We, we, yes. used to, we used to plant a lot of oats in the United States because mostly for transportation, right? They fed our horses and we, we didn't have cars. Um, since we had cars, we started to focus more on, on uh, human nutrition um, and also feeding animals. George Washington Carver. Right, the sort of famous African American agronomist. He realized very early on that soy was a really good source of protein, and as well as that it kind of helped soil health by by fixing nitrogen. And really, during World War II, um, when you know we weren't importing food, when protein and oils were really scarce, um, you started to have this big boom in, in soybeans. And sort of at, since then, we've had this big boom in meat. And that was also like the advent of you know, processed food becoming a real part of our diets. And so food manufacturers weren't so much looking for whole foods as they were constituent parts. They wanted protein, they wanted oil, they wanted sugar. And of course, that fueled corn and soy's ascendancy as well. That's right. I mean, I think I saw globally soybean production has increased 1,300% since the 60s. Um, and uh, and the acreage is up about 400%. So they, the yields have really increased, Huge but it's, increased. Still, it's still using more land. In the United States, it's really, it's corn and soy are the two biggies. And as you mentioned, they're, they're grown in rotation. And Brazil now has even more of it. We should say in the United States, it's you know, 95% GMO, the soybeans. It's mostly it's Roundup Ready, or now it's all kinds of glyphosate-tolerant uh, crops. The idea is that uh, they make it so that you can essentially apply apply this pretty powerful herbicide, and it won't kill the plant, which... Uh, as we'll discuss, you know, people people don't like that, but there, there are some reasons that it you know, has some upsides as well. A main thing we should also mention is that globally, more than three quarters of soybeans are now fed to animals, uh, mostly chickens, also pigs. It's true that 
we do eat a lot of chickens in the world, about 70 billion a year, um, but it sort of would be weird to blame soy for the fact that we like to eat chickens. Um, you know, if, if China or the entire world decided that we weren't going to eat anything with soy anymore, uh, presumably we would just have to use less efficient crops to to feed animals, and that would require more acreage. Right. So if we're if we're going to eat animals, if we're especially you know chickens and pigs in this context, if we're going to eat animals, the best crops to feed them with are soy and corn. There, there's not a better substitute. Exactly, and in the same way, we should probably mention that the other crop that everybody hates, which is palm oil, right? And that people are boycotting all the time. That's like the most efficient oil. <laughs> so, so you had to open that can of worms. We, we're going to do a whole episode on palm oil pretty soon. Right. And, and like palm oil, the one other thing I got to mention about, uh, you know, in our soy 101 is that there is some of it, not that much of it in the global scheme of things, but a fair amount of it is used for biodiesel, um, which is you know, since we're already outing ourselves as soy lovers, it's an incredible waste of perfectly good soy. <laughs> I know this is going to astonish those of you who come here often that, that Mike doesn't have anything good to say about biodiesel. Yes, we should be we should be using our crops for food. We should not be putting them in our fuel tanks. And of course, I can't resist mentioning the fact that uh, in the United States, you know, we have this mandate for corn ethanol. Um, which is 15 billion gallons. But then there's a, we're also supposed to have advanced biofuels that aren't grown from crops, and that's supposed to be 20 billion gallons. Um, but of course, nobody's figured out how to make those advanced biofuels work. So there's really only one crop that's uh, counted as an advanced biofuel, um, and that is soy biodiesel, which is not advanced at all. It's just using crops. But somehow they were able to, to rewrite the rules because... The Soybean Association has a lot of power in the United States, and farmers like to increase the prices of their crops. Um, so, yes, we do use some of the soy, not only for animal feed, not only for tofu and tempeh. Some of it does go into our fuel tanks. So that's the lay of the land with soy. And just for uh, just a little bit more perspective, so the United States has about 400 million crop acres in the country, and about a quarter of it is soy, about a quarter of it is corn, and the rest of it is everything else. So we're looking at a legume that occupies almost 25% of our crop acreage and that everybody hates. So let's get into the questions about uh, the, that, the reasons people hate soy. Okay, so in my travels, I have seen a lot of crank nutrition theories. And a lot of them have one characteristic in common. They are super sciencey. So they'll talk about mitochondria. They'll talk about specific strains of bacteria in your microbiome. They'll talk about markers for inflammation. They'll talk about how, you know, whatever it is that they're against makes things go haywire in your system. And it's it's going to be very compelling, in part because it is super sciencey. But whenever you run across a theory like that, remember the parable of the the blind men and the elephant. So this was the like, blind man who hated science. 
<laughs> That's right. And the, so there's like five blind men and an elephant. And each of the blind men is is feeling a piece of the elephant. One has the tail, one has the ear, one has the trunk, one has the toenail. And they have this big argument about what an elephant is because each of them is only seeing this little part. Okay, now think about human nutrition. And it's the blind men and the elephant, except that we only have people looking at the tiniest parts of the elephant. The tassel on the tail, the left incisor, the hair on the top of the head. Because what we know about nutrition is absolutely dwarfed by what we don't know. So if somebody is telling you, to pick an example at random, that seed oils are terrible for you because of this one interaction that they claim it has in your body, remember, that's the toenail. And in order to make decisions about, you know, what's actually good for you, you have to see the whole elephant. And you're not going to see the whole elephant, basically, because we don't have good tools to study human nutrition. And so the best way to figure out if something is actually good for humans is to feed it to them and see what happens. And it's funny because crank nutrition theories are often not borne out in actual trials. Okay, so with that as the preface, let's talk about man boobs. If you head on over to PubMed with a repository of papers where Mike and I spend an unconscionable amount of time... You can actually see that people who eat a lot of soy or people who are fed soy in trials, um, it doesn't seem to affect their hormonal status. And again, you know, none of this is, you know, scientific truth on the order of, say, gravity. We're all still figuring these things out. But the preponderance of the evidence is that soy is not going to to give you man boobs. So right. it, and, and I think uh, similar with early puberty, right? I saw there was a bunch of that online. No. There's actually seriously compelling evidence for that because they sometimes use soy in uh, infant formulas. And so they look at kids who were who were fed infant formulas that that uh, that had soy in them. And certainly the studies I've seen indicate no early puberty, no hormonal dysfunction as a result of that. Now, soy is bona fide an allergen. It absolutely is. It's, you know, one of the top eight, but it's not the top. And it's sort of the bottom of the top eight somewhere. Right. And and if you're allergic to soy, that's absolutely a problem. But if we were eliminating things from our food supply because people were allergic to them, you can kiss your peanut butter goodbye. And right. so, and I think it's it's more than people who are allergic to soy who seem to think that it's bad for them. Right? Oh, absolutely. And you know, the allergen thing is at least straightforward. You can find out if you have a soy allergy. And I'm absolutely in favor of labeling things that have the protein component of soy, because of course, an allergy is a response to a protein. So you're not going to be allergic to vegetable oil from soy as long as it doesn't have protein in it. But this whole seed oils are poisonous thing has gotten traction that just bewilders me. You don't spend your time knee-deep in nutrition the way I do. Have you seen it, Mike? I have heard about it. You know, I guess there's this association with, with the oils and the processed food, right? Because I guess they do have oils in them. And also they're, they're processed with chemical solvents, with hexane, and, 
And there's a chart going around that shows, you know, seed oils in our diet and obesity. And of course, you can see the close correlation. But you can do that with like organic food and GDP as well. Right. So exactly. It's, it's Anything not, we've had more of. That's exactly right. <laughs> and we've had more of a lot of things. And yeah, seed oils are in processed food, and eating a whole lot of processed food is probably not a great idea, and maybe that's another episode as well. But if you look at the evidence for soy, it actually seems to be safe, doesn't have a lot of downsides, and it does have some upsides. And nutritionally, it's the, the protein is good, the fiber is good. There's just nothing wrong with soy. Now, Mike touched on the GMO issue. So I want to touch on that briefly from a nutritional context, not from an environmental, because I think that there are issues with herbicide tolerance environmentally. And again, there's a huge body of evidence. And if you're looking for stuff that says GMOs are not safe to eat, believe me, you'll find it. But if you look at the preponderance of the evidence um, it's pretty clear that whatever GMOs downsides are, they are safe to eat. And and my sense is that even the uh, nutritional studies that have sort of raised flags about about GMOs, like oh, you know, people say like oh, they're carcinogenic, and then you you look at the study and it actually shows in mice a potential pathway where they conceivably could be carcinogenic, but you don't see like, oh, those GMOs cause somebody's cancer. And and again, it's a really hard thing to tease out. But of course, we have this man-made, this sort of natural experiment with genetically modified foods because all of a sudden, almost everything we give to, to pigs and chickens is genetically modified. And they have not been able to tease out differences in how the pigs and chickens have done on this kind of feed. I'm sure people are going to disagree, but my read of the evidence is that GMOs are safe to eat. Right. And so basically, soy is a nutritional win. <laughs> Again, we have to distinguish between what's soy's fault and what's the fault of how it's used, right? It's like, yes, it's in a lot of unhealthy processed foods. Yes, it is. But again, that's not a soy problem, right? It's a I Twinkie mean, problem. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, there are some questions about GMOs. Uh, certainly, you know, there, I think some of their actually yield advantages have been exaggerated, um, particularly the Roundup Ready soybeans. But in general, it seems like even environmentally, um, yes, people use more more Roundup when, when they're using these GMO soybeans, but they use less of other toxic chemicals that often are even worse than Roundup. That was kind of true in the beginning. So Roundup Ready Soy came out in the late 90s. And one of the things that people were concerned about was that, okay, well, this is going to start an arms race um, to, as soon as glyphosate stops working, they're going to have to put some other herbicide in there and it's just going to keep going and going and going. And, you know, my beef with Roundup Ready crops was that it meant that farmers were using the same herbicide regimen on the two crops that were in rotation. And part of the advantage of having rotated crops is that you have different chemical regimens with them. And so pests don't have a chance to, pests and weeds, don't have a chance to to develop resistance. But I think there's widespread agreement that Roundup Ready accelerated weeds resistance to glyphosate. 
And now, of course, the the next generation, which is dicamba resistant, has actually been hugely problematic um, for a number of reasons that involve the fact that dicamba drifts in a way that glyphosate doesn't. And so it 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 has not been an unmitigated good. Right. Right. So we'll get to some of this farming stuff and assessment. Just to summarize about the nutrition, it seems like soy is, you know, it's it's kind of an awesome protein. It's it's got the aminos, you know, it's it's known for its good texture, right? Um and then it's got that neutral taste, right? That right. like I I no cat pee. Right, right. right. Well, I tell the story about how, you know, I've spent some time with the head of Beyond Meat, um Ethan Brown, um and he made a decision to use pea protein instead of soy protein, essentially because of soy's bad reputation. Um, he didn't want people to say, like, I'm not going to eat it just because it's soy and I've got a bad feeling about soy. So he used pea protein instead. But he says, he, he says right out, like, he doesn't think there's anything wrong with soy. Um, he just did it for reputational reasons. And personally, and I think there's, I think a lot of people feel this way, like Impossible Burgers, which do use GMO soy, they taste better than Beyond, than I, Beyond I, Burgers. I agree. I think there's a really important sort of object lesson here, which is that consumers do have power here. But when you deploy consumer power against things like genetic modification or um, I mentioned more at my peril, high fructose corn syrup is another one. You get companies responding in ways that can be suboptimal either for human nutrition or for environmental impact. So let's do a little bit of the environmental side of this. Right. Um, because, again, soy... Terrible reputation, but there are two really great things about it environmentally, um, and we've we've mentioned them, but but it's worth repeating them. You know, the that they require less fertilizer because they fix their own nitrogen, and most importantly, that they are so much more efficient. So they require fewer resources and fewer land uh, to produce the same amount of calories. So when people talk about deforestation. It is true that there is a direct link between soybeans and deforestation. Uh, it's not nearly as much as cattle, but it's, you know, certainly in terms of agriculture, it's number two in terms of the effect on, on the Amazon okay, uh, behind I think cattle. I want to pause here because I think this is really important. So, so cattle are the number one thing responsible for deforestation as far as we know. Um, That's just a fact. (laughs) We know it. (laughs) And you and I are like, cattle's responsible for deforestation, don't eat beef. Soy is number two. And we're like, okay, well, soy is responsible for the next level of deforestation, but soy is good. And I think we have to be really clear about why stopping eating cattle and stopping eating soy are completely different, even though both drive deforestation. Well, first of all, just in terms of direct deforestation, it's not even close. People clear Amazon to 
turn it into pasture. They very rarely clear Amazon to turn it into into soybean fields. But in, now, in fairness, though, I should mention they're clearing a lot of the Cerrado, which is not forest, but is a really valuable savanna um, ecologically. And there, there, there's a lot of soybeans being grown there. Um, and even in the Amazon, you see a lot where they'll they'll clear it, they'll put in a pasture, and then eventually that pasture will turn to soybeans and then they'll clear more of the Amazon for more pasture. So yes, there absolutely is an impact um, on the Amazon of soy. The main point, and we've sort of suggested this earlier, is that if it wasn't for soy, there would be an even bigger impact. Right. And that's that's where I want to zero in. Because if you stop eating beef and you eat, you know, certainly lentils, but even uh, pork or chicken, you're going to eat something with less impact. But if you stop eating soy or if you stop feeding it to animals, you're going to need something that has more impact. The key question is, okay, if you stop doing this, are you going to eat something that has more or less impact? And the answer with beef is it's going to have less. The answer is soy is it's going to have more. Exactly. It's a, it's a math game, and we're talking about the right. opportunity cost, essentially. And we right. like math. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is true. It reminds me of, I actually, when I was in Brazil now, gosh, 15 years ago, I met the soybean king of Brazil. His name was, uh, is uh, Bruno Magi. He's a billionaire. He was also, not coincidentally at the time, he was the governor of the province of Mato Grosso. So he was responsible for, for sort of regulating deforestation. Um, and, and, and we think he, the farm bill is bad. <laughs> he, was, he was a very colorful guy. He kind of looked like, uh, sort of looked like the henchman in, in an action movie. Um, you know, he had this crew cut. He was like... He was kind of mean, but he was also very funny. And uh, and one of the things, he said it as a joke, but there was something to it. Um, I kept pressuring him, uh, you know, pressing him about deforestation. And he kept saying to me, like, oh, yeah, it's easy for you to say. You deforested America back in the 19th century. Um, and now you have this magnificent breadbasket we're just trying to do what you did. And there's really no difference what his point was, like essentially like a, a, you know, a soybean plant in Brazil has the same impact as a soybean plant in the United States. It's just that we cleared our forests earlier. But what we're talking about is, you know, when we talk about the impact of these crops, it's how much land do they require for the amount of calories and protein that they are producing. And that's where soy does way better than just about everything you could replace it with. Right. And and this idea that we deforested so long ago and now we're telling other people not to, I think is important and and kind of compelling because a lot of these places are in the developing world and so it's definitely problematic for us in the developed world to try and go out in the world and tell less developed countries that they shouldn't be raising their forests. Exactly. I mean, we're, we're saying, oh, you, we have a soy problem and it's your problem. We have a deforestation problem. Right. So get well, right on that. What we really that. have is a, yeah. we have is a meat demand problem, right? right. What, what's happening is we are eating stuff that soy is fed to. And, and if we would like there to be less demand for soy, we are going to have to have less demand for, 
you know, the animals that eat soy. Um, right. Or, you know, and one way of doing that would be to eat more of the plants directly, as we've said, you know, ad infinitum on this show, sort of eliminate the animal middleman. And yes, that will reduce demand for land and which will reduce demand for deforestation. When I visited Magi's farm, we had to drive for like two hours to get to his actual farmhouse. I mean, it was really, it was like a state, <laughs> this, this farm. There were like combines littered all over the farm, like these gleaming new combines. I mean, it was this unbelievable industrial operation. And I think in a way, that's sort of what people are objecting it, to, it right? It absolutely They've, is what people are objecting to. Yeah. So I think... You know, again, this is an entirely different episode, right, to Mm -hmm. to really dig into industrial agriculture. But we have industrial agriculture. You know, in the United States, we have this in the entire middle of the country. It's, you know, soy and then corn, corn and then soy, right? Those are our our crop rotations. And really, as we've said, soy is kind of the better half environmentally of that soy corn marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, It's taking nitrogen out of the air and putting it into the soil. And then so that essentially corn can take that nitrogen out of the soil. And when we over fertilize, put a lot of that into the air and into our water bodies and into the Gulf of Mexico, where we have this gigantic dead zone. So I think that it is true that industrial agriculture has a big environmental impact. But once again, it's sort of, is that soy's fault and compared to what? And so that's basically where we come down on this, that soy, the plant, the crop is good, but some of the things associated with soy, its uses, and in some cases, the way that it's being grown are a problem. And so given its many fine qualities, The question is, why all the hate? So why the hate? I went to Minnesota last year to go look at Purist Foods, uh, which is a company. It's actually the the CEO. It's a really interesting guy, Tyler Lorenzen. People might know him because he was a backup tight end for the New Orleans Saints. Not a typical agribusiness CEO, but his dad was a plant breeder. And had this essentially soybean company out in the Midwest. And Tyler took over the company and raised $75 million from Cargill. And today, it is a pea protein company. Um, They still do a little bit of soy. But this is a guy who has soy in his bones. So I was asking him, like, you know, why did you go from soy to peas, Uh, which don't taste as good. And in fact, purists, their whole shtick is that they're trying to make peas that don't taste like anything. They kept feeding, they fed me a cheesecake with pea oil instead of soy oil. And they're like, see, it tastes like cheesecake. Not that it tastes good, (laughs) just that it, you know, it's a neutral flavor, which is what soy already has. And so I asked him and I asked his sister who, uh, you know, helps him run the company, like, why would you give up on soy and turn to this really new thing that people don't even like? And he said, soy has a Google problem. You put in soy and the first thing that comes up is man boobs. <laughs> um, it's, it's this whole reputation and this waste, you know, these ideas have gotten out of control. He changed his entire business model and, you know, we laugh about it. You know, we're, we're sitting here again dispensing the facts. Here's what to know about soy. He does not dispute any of those facts. He loves soy. He, you know, 
made a business that started on soy. Well, perception is reality. People hate soy. And if you're in the business of trying to sell something to people, it doesn't make sense to start with something they hate. It puts you behind the eight ball before you even begin. Right. And as you mentioned, there's some guilt by association, right? I think this is people who have problems with industrial ag. They see soy as a product of industrial ag. So. And it totally is. And and a lot of those objections are legit. I mean, industrial ag has had a lot of problems. And my biggest issue is nutrient runoff and the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and it's it's a genuine problem. But the thing is that industrial ag is this big, amorphous, multifaceted thing. And of course, you can't opt out of all of it because it's basically our entire food supply. And so people are looking for a handhold um, to say, okay, this is the thing that for me is a proxy for all the evils of of an industrialized food supply. And so I am not going to to buy this thing. And, you know, GMOs were certainly that way. High fructose corn syrup was that way. And now I think soy is to some extent that way. Uh, you know, Michael Pollan's thing about it shouldn't have more than five ingredients. That was a thing. The the whole clean label movement. There's, there's a lot of things that people, they want to sort of opt out of this thing that they don't like. But there's no real way to opt out. It so this is it's it's a proxy. It's almost symbolic. It's become this sort of metaphor for all the ills of the food system, right? Right. But like U.S. farmers, they're they're not planting 90 million acres of metaphors, right? And you know, as as terrible as the dead zone is, if you replaced soy, uh, it would be worse because soy requires less fertilizer than than the alternatives. As bad as deforestation is, um, if you replace soy with a less efficient crop, you would have more deforestation. Now, if we replaced in our diets, if we replaced meat with uh, with miso or you know tofu or tempeh, then absolutely that would actually be better. And and in fairness, if we used plant, if we replaced meat with plants that weren't soy based, that would also reduce our you know our our impact on the land. Don't blame soy for the problems of the food system that, in some ways, it's making less awful. So then the the question for me is okay. Soy is a great crop, but the way that we have grown it has been problematic in some ways. So how can we do it better? And I think that, you know, that question applies to pretty much everything we grow in our food supply. And I want to harken back to our episode on the Inflation Reduction Act because there's money in the USDA budget now to help farmers try and figure out how to grow everything better. And, you know, when we talked about the the act, we talked about how some of the things that people are, are pushing as climate-friendly practices, things like no-till, may not really affect carbon sequestration, but they might affect the soil's ability to retain water. They might reduce runoff. So there are other aspects of this. So I am hoping that this $20 billion that's allocated for these things will help people experiment with ways to grow everything better. I'm all for the exper experimentation. But if 
you know, no-till ends up creating more weeds and, and reducing yields in that way. If, uh, if cover crops turn out to be too expensive and it leads farmers to lead to lower yield kind of agriculture, if crop rotation uh, means you're rotating in lower yield crops, that has a huge climate impact because that means we're going to need more land to make the same amount of food. It does. But, but I, I, I think that I'm less worried about these particular ways of improving farming, lowering yields, because, and I think we've talked about this before, that I think that, you know, farmers can be relied on to to try and protect <laughs> yeah. yields. And what are things, their top three priorities? Things that lower yields are not going to get traction out there. And so, so I have a little more um, of a, a rosier view of these things, I think, than you do. Yeah, no, I'm really terrified about yield, even though it is true that farmers' top three priorities are yield, yield, and yield. Yield and yield, exactly. <laughs> if we're going to talk about alternatives, I have to mention uh, my favorite, which uh, I wrote about recently for Canary. I can see um, it coming. <laughs> which is pongamia, right? Pongamia. And it's this ama- it's a miracle crop. And essentially, it's a tree crop that is, you know, it grows wild in India. There are millions of acres of it, but it's essentially vertical soy. It creates this, you know, a bean with a lot of protein and a lot of oil. And it's, except it has right now probably four times soy yields. Which is huge. Um, Ultimately, it could have maybe 10 times soy yields. And it grows without pesticides, without fertilizer. It doesn't even need irrigation water. You could grow it in the desert and reclaim some really bad land. So it really is, I think, you know, a potential, just a real game changer for agriculture problem is uh, this company, Terviva, that I love so much that's been working on it now for almost 15 years. And they have now, they've now planted 1,500 acres in the United States, which is amazing. And they've, you know, they've raised a lot of money based on this incredible potential. But, you know, 1,500 acres is pretty small compared to the 300 million acres of soybeans in the world. So I think <laughs> we're going to have to do an episode on this because it sounds too good to be true. And if it's all the things you say it is, there should be like a mad rush to plant it. And that's not happening. So I would love to think that it would pan out. But trees are slow. I know. (laughs) I know. And you know, trying to get a farmer to plant something new is like Uh, a very difficult. uh... So the problem here seems to be not that our problem is soy, But our problem is the way that we talk about soy. Our problem is the things that capture the public's imagination or the things that concern people um, aren't always the things that turn out to be true. And, you know, we just recorded an uh, episode on culture wars, and it just seems to me like so many of these problems come down to discourse. We suck at this. I think that's right. Yes, we do suck. We sort of have this idea that it, that soy is badly made. So, you know, we don't like that. When Let's face it. I mean, the real, to the extent there's a problem with soy, it's a problem with our diets. Um, right. We have a demand for soy and we haven't come up with a better option uh, for feeding the animals that we like to eat than soy. And so it's almost it's almost a kind of like self-hatred or kind of willful denial um, where we don't want to say like, hey, we have an eating problem. Instead, we say like, hey, agriculture has a soy problem. 
And of course, this is a way of shifting the focus away from the choices that we make to the choices that people who are very distanced from us make. Big corporations, farmers, um, things that happen without our input, without our consent. And those are always the things that it's easier to blame than the the choices that we make ourselves. Right. Like, don't don't blame you. Don't blame me. Blame the, blame crop the guy behind, the, behind tree. the tree. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And of course, everybody likes heroes and villains. And as we always say on this show, food is all trade-offs all the time. There aren't that many white hats and black hats, although if there were white hats, I would say... <laughs> soy would have one. Okay, so so he, that's our spirited defense of soy. Do you think we should do corn in the next episode? And then palm oil right after that. Right, we'll uh, we'll right. bring our, our our listenership down to zero. <laughs> we'll get we'll get a lot of hate mail. But uh, but hey, this is the thing that we're here to do is to try and sort through these things and figure out what's true. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media, and we want to know what you're thinking. Send us your questions, your comments, your rotten fruit you can keep to yourself. But call us at 508-377-3449 or send us an email at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. We like to feature questions on episodes, and yours could be next. The show is hosted by me, Tamar Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Scott Clavana and Stephen Lacey are executive producers. Senior editor is Ann Bailey. Managing producer is Cecily Mesa Martinez. And associate producer is Dalvin Abawaje. Engineering is done by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfranc. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for spreading the word. We really appreciate all the great ratings and reviews you've been giving us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. And if you have somebody else who you think would really enjoy our show, please pass them a link. And we'll be back next week with a new episode. 